Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Finally back after what? It's been like a month, but it was a pretty crazy month working for NBC uh, during the Olympics, doing soccer stats and just couldn't get it together to get out a, a, a podcast. But new episode ready for you, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. And this is episode number 328. Um you know, that's more caps than Carly Lloyd has. So we'll just put it that way. But I want to give a shout out to Jody Taylor back in the NWSL already helped Orlando to their first win under new interim head coach, Becky Burley, Jody Taylor. She had 328 minutes last summer in the 2020 challenge cup playing for OL rain. She went on loan to Leon or rather no, she was transferred to Leon and then her NWSL rights were traded a couple of times. So she is in Orlando. So shout out to Jody Taylor. All right. Two segments this week. First, a good chat with my friend Dan LaLetta of Equalizer Soccer. We kind of did a brief Olympic recap, really just about, you know, the semifinals and onwards. And then kind of just a, a quick NWSL, like, hey, if you're new to NWSL, Here's some big storylines we think you need to know about. Also, a great chat with my friend Melissa, who runs the Chivas in English, uh, Chivas Feminil in English Twitter account. Um, I recorded this one with her about three weeks ago, so it's a little out of date in terms of what we're talking about for the U.S.-Mexico friendlies. But in general, it's it's all pretty current, just uh, you know the growth we're seeing in Mexican women's soccer. And of course, there's a Jen Splainer segment between the two chats. Talk about the upcoming ICC and Women's Cup tournaments. So hope you enjoy this episode. Sorry it's taken so long to get it out. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone, M-I-X-X-E-D Zone, and at Keeper Notes. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, finally back after late night Olympic duty to talk women's soccer, of course, with Dan LaLetta of Equalizer Soccer. Dan, I I still don't know like what day it is or what time it is, but at least at least I know I'm like I'm back home in, in Texas and I'm actually doing my podcast again. It's been about a month after a, a whirlwind time in in connecticut working well, you, stats you for nbc yeah you had it way worse than me because you were actually living on japan time in connecticut but that bronze medal game just <laughs> killed me i was i was not planning on the 4 a.m wake-up call and you had said it you game. had said at the start of the tournament they better make the gold medal game so we can watch it at 10 p.m or, right, or lose lose the quarters would have been fine too <laughs> just didn't want the bronze medal game but i, I did it i woke up and I watched it, and then I went to see someone for the gold medal game in Connecticut. And when I got there, the gold medal game had been moved to the move. next morning. <laughs> so that didn't work out so well for me either. <laughs> but I, I feel like uh, as hard as it was for me and for you, I, I feel it was probably harder for all the fans trying to watch because, you know, one, you've got the, the time zone, right? Two, it's not always obvious how to watch, right? Like unlike the world cup where it's the only thing going on, right? So all advertising related to it 
is so focused on here's when to watch, here's how to watch, right? The Olympics is so huge, so many events. Um, you know, obviously you can't space these games out, right? Like World Cup, you don't have any games overlap except for the, the last day of the group stage, right. right? Here these games had to overlap because it's such a compressed schedule. Um, and even I didn't understand until after the tournament started that, sure, there were live streams on NBCOlympics.com. But if you couldn't authenticate to a cable provider that had NBC Sports, after 30 minutes, you were kicked out. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> not easy. I was actually pretty pleased that the games were, as far as I know, all the U.S. games were on the same channel. And they were on a pretty decent channel because, like you said, soccer is like the 40th most important sport at the Olympics. And... It's not the big, you know, the sports like swimming and track and field and gymnastics where that's what you shoot for. If you do those sports, you try for the Olympics. You know, soccer, right. you're, not that you don't want to win the gold medal and whatnot, um, but, you know, on the men's side, it's not even the full national team. So I was pleasantly surprised that soccer got actually a pretty good run in terms of, you know, where it was on. But, yeah, you had to find out, and it wasn't real easy to find it out and you really don't want to be up at like 4 a.m. if the game's not going to be starting till 5 or at 5 a.m. and realize the game started at 4. Um, so yeah, once you figure it out, it was good. And I sent out a reminder. I actually got more engagement than I thought on this tweet, but World Cups and Olympics, when they say 4 o'clock, the game kicks at 4 o'clock. You know, you don't like put it on at 4.05 and they're still babbling about stuff. Right. Kickoff times are hard kickoff times. Right, right. And there were some times on, on the broadcast that I worked where um, because we were late coming back from something in the studio, you know, they had already kicked off at, at the stadium, right? Because the stadium is not beholden to one broadcaster. That stadium right. is, is, is serving every broadcaster worldwide where, yeah, U.S. Women's Friendly that's shown by ESPN. It's only ESPN, so they're not starting until ESPN is ready. Absolutely. And can we talk about the world feed for a minute? Because the world sure, feed left a bit of the world feed. desired. You know, Jen Hildreth, who we all love, who calls NWSL games. I think she's worked for every network in existence, right? Following the NWSL around. Yes. There was a goal in the Netherlands-Brazil game in the group stage that it was so obvious that she didn't see it. We didn't see it. And it was so yeah. obvious that she hadn't seen it either. And I think she thought she just did a fantastic job at kind of not even covering it up, but just kind of recovering from that. And then I think she said, we'll look at it with you. You know, when they went to the replay, I thought it was incredibly well done, especially because she was with you. So it was probably five, six in the morning, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. in Connecticut. Yeah. So I thought, and, that yeah, we've only got, there. we've only got, you know, the one screen and, and it's, it's not even what we're choosing to be shown, right? It's it's the world feed. It's just like the World Cups where there's so many broadcasters. So there's just one feed and then they can add their audio and stuff on, you know, on top of it. And it was like a lot of the VAR calls. I mean, uh, Julie Foudy even mentioned this in the bronze medal match, right? Where we thought there might be a penalty in the first half that Megan Rapino had drawn where she's like, you know, it'd be really nice while we're waiting for this VAR to, see, actually a re- show it. to see a replay. Like right. I don't need an, I don't need a isolation shot of Megan Rapino's face. I need a replay. Or, <laughs> yeah, or the, the referee replay. looking at the screen. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, can we make sure VAR never makes it here, by the way? You mean by here? You mean NWSL? Correct. I I am good with that. I know I'm it's coming if they can afford it, and I know that 
The EPL just put in some new measures that if they actually work, sound like they will really improve VAR. But, I mean, come on, some of the delays and even some of the calls, yeah. and, you know, this is not a sour grape sort of thing about Canada beating the United States. Don't tell me that call ever gets made in real time, even if the referee thinks or, or the even, got the even if it's not about first. that, what about like all the offside calls that the U.S. had and you know. which were all like by the book correct? They're just not what I want to see change the game. But what really gets me is that they don't put the flag up anymore because they're afraid to stop an onside play. Right. So, so the, the defender, the so defender has to make the run every time. So you're killing the defenders. And eventually you're going to get a really bad collision between a attacker and a keeper yeah. it just kills the flow of the game because you just never know you know exactly what's happening in the game it just i i can you know i know i'm in the great minority here but i can live with the human error in in officiating and if you're going to do it you know really make it so that if you can't tell without the shadow of a doubt in 15 seconds just keep going right but- and, and and like you said, kill the flow. I think is the is the key phrase, right? Most changes to soccer rules over the last several decades have been related to, hey, we want to make sure the game keeps flowing. That's why what was it late eighties when they changed the rule that you could no longer pass back to the keeper and have the keeper yep. pick it up with their hands, right? They wanted to keep the game flowing. Adding the extra subs temporarily um, due to COVID and heat issues they still kept the stipulation that you can only use three sub windows over the course of 90 minutes because they didn't want to keep interrupting the game with subs. Right. So it's like, that's why VAR, I I agree with you because VR it's it's like, it does, it's spirit doesn't seem to be about not disrupting the flow of the game. That being said, I would fully support goal line technology because that that would, yeah, that would like, I think about that Kalia Watt goal against the Spirit. What was that last last month? Where it's like so clearly in the net. Absolutely, and, and, there, and the other one, the Orlando um, was it Orlando Kansas City, where it was they called it in, and it was I thought the replays were kind of inconclusive. Yeah, goal line yeah. technology would be like if you watch tennis. Replay in tennis is the best replay in sports because it's quick and everybody believes it. So whether or not it's actually 100% accurate, right? Maybe it's 99, maybe it's 98, whatever it is. Everybody sees it. It's quick. Everybody accepts it and moves on, and it really doesn't kill the flow of a tennis match. And, it, and it's not opinion-based. It's Correct. And yeah. right, When you watch a baseball game, if there's a close play at the plate, you can't be happy or upset that the player is safe or out because – most likely, if it's close, it's going to be decided on replay. And that, to me, that's just not fun. It's just not the way I want to consume sports. But again, I know I'm in the minority, but that's my opinion. And you're used to being in the minority in women's soccer, right? I well, am. let's talk. Let's talk other Olympic topics. I mean, you know, the big stuff. I'm I'm so happy for Canada, especially having known so many of the Canadian players over the years and and having watched. Um, <laughs> one of their three wins <laughs> prior to this right. back in November 2000 and knowing how much it, it means to them. Um, the was, yeah, May 2014, I did a, a podcast interview with Erin McLeod while she was still with the Dash and they were, she and the other Canadians were heading off to go play the U.S. And, you know, and she referenced, you know, it's been 
13 years and two months since we last went. I was like, it was so specific. I'm like, wow, that's really burned, mm, yep. you know, in, in your brain. So I'm excited for that. Excited for, for Christine Sinclair. Um, Steph LeBay, who I had never associated as being such a beast with penalties, but now she, she, is, she is permanently in my head a beast with penalties. Bev Priestman, the youngest coach uh, among the the women's teams for the Olympics, like, and her yeah. first year really coaching anywhere, and yeah, I thought her tactics were great. They might not have been the most enjoyable games to watch because of her tactics, but she lined them up and set them up the way she needed to in order to bring home the gold medal. And credit to her, it it absolutely worked. And you know, the best PK save that LeBay had was actually not in the knockout rounds; it was in that first game. When she got oh, hurt quarter, against Japan. Quarter. Oh, yes. yes. Stayed in, saved the PK, horrible PK, but she still saved it. And then had to come out like five minutes later. With the so rib it wasn't injury. Like she was okay. yeah. yeah. So she wasn't even like, quote, okay at that point. And so, then she yeah, made was, she made some great ones against, against Brazil. Yeah. And like, and the youth on that team, I mean, Grosso, Riviere, um, Gilles. Gilles, you know, like, like, you know, they don't have a deep pool beyond that, but I feel like they are doing whatever they can, you know, to, to, to build that pool. So well, you know, I'm not, I'm not surprised to see the calls for like, oh, all right, we need an NFL team in Canada. Right. Well, remember 10 years ago when Caroline Marachi left after they flamed out in the 2011 world cup and she said, uh-huh. I need players that someone find me players in Canada. And then Herdman came in the next year and instantly, found players and it seems like they've been finding players ever since it'll be interesting because so many people relate this win to christine sinclair and you can't blame them because she's been around right seems like literally forever and you know to me she is one of the most inspiring athletes i've ever seen and but this was so much more about becky Quinn, right, you wonder will that generation become now a golden Buchanan, generation? Lawrence, yeah, they're Absolutely. still so young. Yeah, Huitam barely and played. Lawrence, yeah, yeah, and, Fleming. And I, and I wrote before the game against Alan the U.S. Sheridan is what still only twenty six something. Oh yeah. yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think Sheridan's better than Lebay. Not that you know, I mean, Lebay was fantastic in this tournament, but I would, you know, just generally, I would put Sheridan ahead of Lebay. But I wrote before the game against the U.S. that this was, we were talking about it as a rivalry, but both teams have to win sometimes for it to be considered a rivalry. Like they were riding the coattails of they almost or should have beaten the U.S. nine years ago at the Olympics, and they probably should have in that particular game. So I think this adds a little juice to CONCACAF now yes. going forward, even though CONCACAF yes. supremacy is really irrelevant because as you and I have discussed often when not on this podcast, it would be nice if there were an actual CONCACAF championship that people cared about. But I think this will make the U.S.-Canada games going forward a lot more interesting. Now, if it goes in, you know, if the U.S. wins the next seven, then it's a flash in the pan, but an important one because they won the gold medal. But it would be nice, I think, if you went into these games now and actually thought in your head that the U.S. could lose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it's just a, a big milestone for Canada, and and as you're talking about for for the rivalry, and then you know I, I look at Sweden, and I mean it must be heartbreaking to get silver again, especially when they were the dominant team this time around in a way that they weren't in in 2016. But it, it's just like, but what a program, and so many of those players. I mean, like when I looked at the rosters, like 
it was a huge amount of turnover between the 2016 and the 2021 rosters. So, you know, I'm going to be very afraid of Sweden, uh, you know, at the next Women's World Cup. At halftime of the gold medal game, I'm thinking that Sweden was the best team in the tournament. Do they have claim to being the best team in the world? Silver medal in 16, semifinals in third place in 19, gold medal in 2021, and they couldn't hang on to that one nothing lead. Now, you know, again, another very similar penalty kick that maybe doesn't get called, though I think that one had a little bit more. I thought the foul in the U.S. penalty was a more legitimate foul, but I thought the placement and danger of the penalty called against Sweden was more legitimate. But yeah, that's got to sting them badly that they couldn't. And that still does that still does get recorded as a draw. So as that, as that affects rankings and the points associated with, with weighted matches that, that counts as a draw and and, And, and not, not a loss. And in 16, they just kind of mucked their way almost to the gold medal. Similar. It was all about defense. Right. Similar to the way Canada played, but I thought Canada at least tried to play a little soccer in this tournament where Sweden in the knockout rounds in 16 really did not. This time, Sweden was, I mean, if you just watch the games and, like, who do you want going forward, Sweden was the best team in this tournament. I don't think it's even close. Yeah, and, and Black Stinius and Lena Hertag just, oh, they looked good. And, of course, last, um, obviously, we can't talk about all the teams, and, and I don't think we really need to discuss USA because I've seen a lot of discussion out there already, and I think that could be a whole topic unto itself. <laughs> but, but, uh, but Australia... Like, you know, again, kind of in Sweden's boat, we're so close, but so far, but an amazing performance when you think of how little time Tony Gustafsson had with that team, right? I like it. I, I found that to be so impressive. Yeah, right? I didn't watch and, and again, so many young players coming in like 2023 with them hosting, co-hosting is going to rock. I didn't watch a ton of Australia and that, First game against the U.S., um, you know, I think it's generous to call that soccer. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the fact that they rallied against England, that Sam Kerr scored a big goal in a big moment. That they, I yes. mean, think about if that if the Kerr header goes in off the post in what, like the 60th minute, something like that, and makes that yeah, game yeah. 4-3 that much earlier, I do not think the U.S. was safely ahead. In that right. game. At no, I, one, I did, but they, the U.S., you know, yeah, they played better and more free or whatever you want to say, but that was not a great U.S. performance in the bronze medal game. But what I will say about this is that if you look at Canada in 2015, uh, France in 2019, Germany in 2011, host teams have really struggled at the Women's World Cup of late. And I wonder, is it going to be a little bit too much for Australia to have these expectations that they have this perfect storm where in two years maybe they can actually get on the podium or win the World Cup? I hope not because when they're playing their best, they're a joy to watch and they need to be a lot better defensively. But, yeah, they are a legitimate host and they are, you know, I think, honestly, they're kind of where Canada is. You know, you wouldn't, you're not going to go in any tournament and say Australia is going to win. But, it, you know, things broke for Canada this time. Why can't they break for Australia one of these times? Well, and, and I like your point about the host teams, though Though I do think all of them have slightly different stories where Germany was what, weren't they number one or number two in the world and were upset 
you know, by Japan in the quarterfinal. And that was a surprise where Canada in 2015, you know, we know they wanted to go farther, but the fact that they did get to the quarterfinal based on prior performance, right? Right. But like, they play, I thought they yeah. played tight throughout that tournament, though, yeah. even getting to the quarterfinals. Yeah. Germany, as I recall, rolled through the group stage. Yeah. And then Japan beat them. And you know what? You can even look back at that game and say, well, maybe it wasn't as big of an upset as we thought in the moment because right. that started a pretty good run for Japan. And then I, and I feel for France, like being the host country that has to get through the defending World Cup champ at the right, quarterfinals. Just to get to the stage. semis. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you know. the other thing for Germany is they had won two straight World Cups. So, well, we're all sitting here wondering, like, should Vlako Andonovsky keep the job? Like, at some point, the U.S. isn't going to win the World Cup again either. They won right. two straight World Cup. You know, you don't just roll a team out and win the World Cup. Yeah, it's it's the same thing as, I mean, I, I haven't heard this phrase re- recently, and I'm glad. But what we used to hear is like, oh, what if the World Cup, do, what if the U.S. doesn't win the World Cup? What does that mean for the league? And I'm like, hey, we can't predicate the business venture of the league on the U.S. women winning every four years. Like, especially that's not, considering that's not a good business was, plan. Especially considering how badly the league messed up the momentum they had yeah. from winning the last yeah. two. So yeah. they, they'd let, be better me, off if they don't. Let me not get us off, off topic, but la, la, any last thoughts on, on this Olympics? I mean, I always feel like the ones that are not in a good time zone for us in North America um, always suffer a bit. Right, because it's just harder for people to watch. Well, right, not going to get any easier in twenty three at the World Cup. I'll tell you that. Right, no, but I'm just saying in general for Olympics. Right, separate from World Cups, Olympics where you're already competing with other sports, and then the time zone makes it harder, so you don't see quite the same bump of interest as you do off off a, off a World Cup year. Um, yeah, I and, agree and, with and, all and that. then of course, like the you know the, the whole delay thing. But you know, I feel like we had so many NWSL players in there only the women's super league had more active players and it was really by just a few numbers um you know so i'm I'm glad that all those players can come back be with their clubs when you look at the number of games missed it's much fewer than it was in 2016 or or 2015 even 2019 because how the league has managed to spread out the schedule Right. Well, let's um, hope they come back soon. But yeah, yeah you're right. About yeah, that. I'm still wondering. Like, hey, are we going to be told when they're they're coming back? But that that's a whole. Well, I'm kind of fine too. not knowing when they're coming back because that makes it an individual decision, sort of. Right. I mean, I would like well, to tell us. Assuming, yeah, when they're when yeah. they're back, and I think there's actually something in the contract where they get X number of days off, which they should, to right. be honest. But, but, I'm, but I'm but I'm seeing like, but even even the other national teams, right? Like we've seen the New Zealand players come back, but like, okay, Rachel Daly was out after the quarters. At what point does she have to come back, or is that just like an agreement between her and the Dash head coach? Yeah, it's, right? it's a like, fair yeah. question, and and what I always say is that the Olympics change people's lives and you don't know exactly how that's going to kind of show itself when they get back. You know, I'm sure that even for yeah. the Canadian players, it's not going to be, you know, super easy to just fall right back into a club routine after you just had the moment of your life. And maybe for some of the U S players, you know, they're wondering why they couldn't have done better. And maybe that's hard to get motivated for. So, you know, I remember Paul Riley talking about that in 2016, about everybody coming back and also Hinkle, who had been one of the last cuts and having to kind of, you know, keep her motivation up throughout that season because she didn't go to the Olympics. You know, it's 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 really fascinating to have the Olympics right in the middle 
of your season enough to come right. back in and kind of pick up where you left off. Well, or like Mark Parsons said towards the end of 2019 is what we, what he was dealing with when the players came back from the World Cup, even his players that were champions, you know, he's like, mm-hmm. I have a midfielder that didn't get to play in the final. You know, she's upset about that. I have a Canadian who feels guilty that she didn't take a penalty kick. Yeah. I have a Brazilian who thought her team should have gone for, you know, that everybody was carrying some kind of frustration. And I remember Paul Riley saying, I don't know publicly, but he said to me in a, in a private conversation, you know, the World Cup players came back and they had their celebration, but it's it's time to get in gear. And he was basically saying that his World Cup players weren't playing great for a while after 2019. I think he was right. Now, they obviously got going enough that yeah. they won the championship, but that was accurate. And, you know, again, it, you know, it's not easy and it's a lot of minutes. And I don't know. One thing about the the Olympics is I don't think we got a full – um, sort of understanding of the conditions and how hot and humid it was. I don't know right. if that's because there were no fans or because, you know, there wasn't a lot of sun necessarily, but I think that maybe took a lot out of a number of players. Then, you know, how about players like Christy Mewis, who played, I don't know how many minutes, but not, not many. a lot. Is she is she just chomping at the bit to play soccer? Or is she coming over and saying, you know, I made this team after all this work, and the team didn't play as well as they were supposed to. Why didn't I get more minutes? So, right. you know, and that's right. something that coaches have to figure out. And, you know, you look at Mewis is on the dash who just got rolled by the rain and they're not in the best spot right now in general. So that's just an added layer, you know, that Mark, uh, sorry, James Clarkson has to look at where you look at Mark Parsons with the thorns. I think they're clearly the best team in the league with the Olympic players gone. Yeah. So he, you know, he's not on any rush or under any pressure to get, you know, Haran and Sinclair back in, where I think the Dash desperately need Daly and Mewis to be in the lineup. Well, and and I think that the Dash might benefit from the fact that after this weekend, they've got the women's ICC, you know, and, and Port, Portland too, obviously, as, as hosts, because, hey, you could win, you could lose, but it doesn't affect your standing. So it's right. it's an opportunity to kind of reacclimate players with, you know, the lineup, maybe make some tweaks, experiment some ways and, and, and face competition you're not used to facing, you know, and just kind of have that breather of this is different and this yeah, is special, sure. and, you know. Um, and speaking of NWSL, let's let's switch gears because what, what I want to put up to you is like, okay, I, I'm going to assume that we've got some new NWSL fans, fans that watch the, the Olympics because they're big U.S. soccer fans and maybe they haven't watched a lot of NWSL and now they're curious about it because one of the things that I made sure to do on the games that I worked for NBC was make sure that my announcers had as much NWSL information as possible <laughs> so they could drop little nuggets it showed. here and there. <laughs> Good. Um, so, you know, w- what would be, you know, the two or three big storylines that you would want to impart to someone who's just starting to watch NDSL. Clearly they know some of the players from the Olympics, but what would be your intro to NWSL to those people? Well, my main takeaway, if you are, if you just watch the Olympics and you're trying to get into NWSL, the U S players from the Olympic team are going to be a lot better in the NWSL than you probably saw them play for the U S like Lynn Williams for the courage is a dynamic player, and you're going to get to see her play next to Amy Rodriguez. Who is That's going to be crazy. Champion. Right, and that hasn't happened yet because Rodriguez got traded to the Courage during the Olympics, specifically because Paul Riley thinks 
that will be a good connection. You know, I think Christy Mewis, who I just mentioned, barely plays, is a dynamic, game-changing midfielder for the Houston Dash. You know, Samantha Mewis will play better for the Courage than she did for the U.S. at the Olympics. So that is absolutely my main focus. And then if you're looking for younger players who were not at the Olympics, who will have a chance or should have a chance to make the 23 World Cup list, I mean, start in Washington with Trinity Rodman and Ashley Sanchez. They are, I think their combined age might be 40, 41, something like that. Sanchez, 22. (laughs) Rodman's like 19. I mean, they are not just exciting young players. Like Sanchez might be the best two-way defender, uh, sorry, two-way forward in the league. If you look at how hard she works defensively, Trinity Rodman is 19 and has more patience and like a more refined game than some veterans of the league. So that's where I would start. And you're also going to get a league where, you know, I don't want to be cliche, but anything can happen on any given day. And if you just look at how jumbled up the table is right now, the playoff races should be exciting. And then, of course, the third thing is you and me every now and again being on the broadcast. That doesn't (laughs) hurt either. But, you know, it's it's a good league. And you know what else? The games will be on while you're more likely to be awake than the Olympics were. So there's well, that. And and we have, you know, a lot of big names that weren't in the Olympics uh, that are in the league, you know, and, and I think about that 5-1 thrashing of, of the dash where, you know, Eugenie Lissamer, like, wow, that's that's the Lissamer that we were, oh, we were expecting. so well right now. Right, right. And and, and Mara Sean and, you know, Sarah Buhati and who else? We got uh, Gaetan Tinet for... Um, Gotham, Gotham, you know, th- that kind of thing. And like Jody Taylor's back in the league with Orlando from England, you know, so it's like, it's also to me, it's like a preview for the 2023 World Cup. Also, the 2022 Women's Euro, which is now less than a year away. Right. right? And keep in mind for the rain, if you're going to watch them play, that they are a probably a team that is a one shot deal. Like they're probably not getting all those players that you mentioned back in 2022, if ever, but also they are a product of the weird European Olympic qualifying, which we can talk about if you want. No. Okay. (laughs) That's fair enough. That's a good topic for another day, but yeah. But because Germany and France weren't there, that allowed them to sign Marajan and Lesa Mayer and Buwadi. And Buwadi for, yeah, just for, just for 2021, right? right, They're they're on loan. Right, because you probably wouldn't make that as a loan deal if the players are going to miss a chunk of the season. Now, I think the jury's still out on whether the Reign are going to run through the entire league and win it all or maybe, you know, be touch and go to make the playoffs. But the the first half they played against the Dash, was that Saturday night, is one of the more impressive halves of just like – joyous soccer that I've ever seen in the NWSL. Well, and throw out all the visiting Europeans who are gone after December, but you've got Huerta, Fishlock, Balser, King, who all looked really good. And Danny Weatherholt, who you gave, uh, you know, a shout out to in your La Letta Lowdown. Um, yeah, you know, like, I, I don't think Huerta's looked that good for me in, in a, a long time. And Fishlock, it made me think of 2019 before she tore her ACL, how she had like three goals in three games, right? Like she had just come back from her loan and was tearing it up. And then, boom, she was out with with an injury. 
Yep, you know, it made a so. lot of people wonder why Team GB didn't come calling. But I wonder if she if she turned it down. Well, I, I wouldn't know one way or another, yeah. but she could have helped. Yeah, we don't we don't we don't know one way or another if she was offered any said and, and said, you know, no thanks. Um I would imagine that since the FA got the uh privilege of running Team GB since England had finished, you know, as one of the top three Europeans in the Women's World Cup, that they probably said, Okay, we'll take one Scottish player, one Welsh player, one Northern Ir- Ireland player, right? And probably then the rest so. is England. And I, and so. I think by the way, Balser, who you mentioned Bethany Balser, I think People feel like there's some sort of artificial ceiling to her game because of where she went to college, which was an NAIA school. Bullshit. I think Bethany Balser gets a shot to play in 2023. I'm not saying she's good enough to do it. Well, but we, I'm we've already, we've already seen her get a call into one of Vlaco's camps, right? right. So well, that was she... the ID camp, though. That wasn't but, but, like a but, full. That wasn't right, a but full that's camp. still that still says that's right, someone on the who, radar. Yeah, who's on the radar, just like Ifeoma Onamanu, right? Like she's, she's been really great. She needs a call in. We know purse will come back in. Right. Um, you know, Sophia Smith, the other young ones, you know, I'm just really intrigued. I'm really intrigued to see who's going to start getting called up in the fall. You know, we've got three FIFA windows left for women's soccer for this year, Uh, September window, October window, and November window, the four, post-Olympic games that are part of the U.S. women's contract. Those would be, you know, two in September, two in October. Um, you know, the Olympians have to be called part of that. I'm, I would assume that Vlaka would get to call a few extra for each one of those games, right? And then the November window would be pretty free, right? Yeah, and then be- whatever starts happening in January and February. It's more of like a real window because, you know, the men's teams play – I guess we use Europe as the example every two years, but you know, usually for the women, you get unless you're a European team, you get from the Olympics, and you get like two and a half years to get it figured out. Not quite, I think, the runway that Vlaco wanted or thought he was going to have when he took the right. job. But yeah, it's going to be real interesting, and you know, you got to look at the defense because the defense wasn't great, and we can name forwards until we're blue in the face. But I don't think there are a ton of Defenders, and you got to remember also one of the forwards who might come along is Crystal Dunn, who has been the left back, and then that would leave a void in the back because that's where she's been playing. So you know, a lot of interesting scenarios uh, defensively. But you know, I don't want to harp on Balser, but forwards need to find the ball. You know, it's not just a coincidence where you're just floating around out there and the ball comes to you and do you finish or not. Bethany Balser knows how to find the ball when she does she knows how to score goals and I I think you continue to call in a player like that and make her prove that she can't do it at the international level and for defenders how about oh not my Naughton? yeah I mean I think Naughton won a lot of friends with her post-game comments the other <laughs> night after the 5-1 defeat I mean I I think Naughton's good you know she I again I think she's in the group and Oyster too I'm sure Clarkson would be thrilled to lose them both at some point if there's ever a call in <laughs> that conflicts. But um, yeah, I think she's good enough to get a call in. I, you know, if if you're asking me, do I think she's like starter quality at the international level? I don't. I don't see that yet. No. But I think she's good enough to get a shot because some players just respond better when the lights are brighter. So I don't see why. You know, I'm a big believer. You call in as many people as you can, and I, and I think Naughton is a perfect call in. See what she's got. 
oyster too. And and we've got, you know, way too many players, especially as, you know, next year we'll have 12 teams and who knows after that, right? We've got way too big of a pool to limit it to, oh, we're only going to call X, Y, and Z. Agree, but you know, collective bargaining agreement is up, and that's you know that's that's part of it. And that's a whole other chat too. So clearly, you guys, you and I have a schedule for at least five other <laughs> podcast chats. I'll have to go back and write all these topics down. But I'm I think ready. we did a pretty good job in a little over half an hour covering kind of post Olympics where we are in NWSL. So last, any last NWSL hits you want to throw out there, Dan? Um, I really hope Kansas City gets a win soon. I covered, Me too. I covered the Sky Blue team that started 0-17-6 and, and then barely won their final game of the season. It's not a ton of fun. Um, I think they missed a big opportunity because I think it's courage and rain or rain and courage of their next two games, and that's not going to be easy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're you know, we've got the Olympic players coming back. I, I think it's interesting. The Thorns, a couple of Thorns points. Thorns are the best team without the Olympic players. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Last time they lost was when the Olympic players were there. I think Haran was hurt for the game, but the Courage beat them pretty soundly in a game. That's the last time the Thorns lost the game. So I'm not saying the Thorns aren't getting better when Sinclair and Haran come back. But I wonder if they're still the best team in the league when every team gets their players back. And Bella Bixby in goal is the real deal. Six games, she's allowed one goal. She's got five shutouts. She's already tied the team record with three straight shutouts going into this weekend. Not going to be, I don't think it's just, you know, I don't think Adrienne or French walks in the door and and right back into goal. I, I think it's hard to take your goalkeeper out when she's playing that well. And and it's a great problem to have, right? You you want keepers Especially that are forcing each other. Yeah. yeah. Remember that happened to LeBay when LeBay, speaking of, went to the Olympics in 2016. She came back, never got back in. I don't think she right. played again that season. No, she didn't. She didn't for the spirit. And I think Bella Bixby is playing a lot better now than Kelsey Weiss was playing for the spirit in 2016. And they came within like 30 seconds of winning the whole thing, so... Nice. Well, Dan, as always, thanks for the chatter. Thanks for all the the history that you can, you know, pull out of the nook of your brain like <laughs> I can. Always appreciated. And I'm sure we'll be talking again soon as we continue to have this. It's just like a flood of women's soccer, right? It's not stopping. The Olympics are over, but there's so much more to come. Lots more to come. time for a little gensplaining. This week's topic, well, it's actually two topics, the Women's Cup and the Women's International Champions Cup. You may have heard of these tournaments, wondering what they are, what they mean. First, uh, the Women's International Champions Cup. It's obviously the women's part of the International Champions Cup, um, a tournament that's been around for several summers. Uh, It's really just a promotional tournament, right? Bringing a big European clubs over to the U.S. and trying to get a lot of uh, attention for those clubs. But what I like about the the women's ICC is that we've seen, you know, the best of NWSL 
get to play teams like Lyon, Manchester City, etc. First time they had it was in 2018. There were four teams and North Carolina won that one. They had it again in 2019, the month after the Women's World Cup. And North Carolina barely lost to Lyon. It was a very close match. Um, didn't get to have it last year because of COVID, but... It's happening again this year, and this time Portland is hosting. And so you've got four champion teams in it. You've got the 2020 Challenge Cup winners, Houston Dash. You've got the 2020 Fall Series winners, as well as the 2021 Challenge Cup winners, Portland Thorns. And then you have Lyon and Barcelona, uh, the last two European Champions League winners. Uh, So that'll be a four-team tournament in Portland. Uh, The teams will face off Wednesday in a doubleheader. It'll be the NWSL teams facing off and then European teams facing off. Rather, we flip that around. It'll be the NWSL teams in the later game. Uh, Both games on the Wednesday the 18th will be on an ESPN channel, likely ESPNU for the first game, ESPN2 for the second. Then the winners from Wednesday play in the final on Saturday and the losers play in the third place game. So no matter how it falls, the Saturday doubleheader will be an NWSL club versus a European club. So cool to see that. And there's talk that it'll expand likely to um, eight teams in 2022. And then Louisville in their first year in the league, um, they've launched the Women's Cup is what they're calling it. And they've invited PSG from France and Bayern Munich from Germany over for a four-team tournament, along with obviously Racing Louisville and Chicago Red Stars. So they'll do a similar format Wednesday the 18th. You have the Americans, American team facing off, the European teams facing off, and then on Saturday a third place game and a final. Now, interestingly enough for um, the Louisville Chicago matchup on Wednesday 18th, that game is also an NWSL regular season match. So that one will be on Paramount plus. I haven't been able to find info yet on when the other games will air, but of course I will try to put that on my women's soccer Google calendar. So two great tournaments coming up. I'm thinking down the line we'll see both of them expand. Um, so great that there's more club competition for this, and uh, you know, so good that we can watch them so easily. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Melissa from. Let's see. Twitter handle Chivas English, Chivas E-N. How do you do it, Melissa? What's your Twitter handle? Um, Chivas underscore F-E-N-G, or we cover Chivas Feminine in English, but also we just talk all uh, over the league too. So, <laughs> And yeah, you're my go-to person, obviously not just for Chivas, but for the league and also, you know, the Mexican women's national team as I, I think they're going through such an interesting transition, uh, you know, when I think back to 2018, that World Cup qualifying and, you know, they didn't get out of the group stage and it was it was a bit shocking. Uh, but I felt like that was like the old guard. That was the end of the old guard. And I think we're 
kind of we're, we're almost to the new guard, not quite right. Like at that point, the league, uh, Liga MX had been the women's league had been what uh, I think a full year. Just they had, they had one year, you know. Um, so now a few more years under its belt, um, the league developing and adding more roster spots each year, and you know slowly more more development, more support. Um, so I feel like these games that the Mex the Mexico just played against the U.S. I feel like they are kind of the halfway point between that 2018 qualifying tournament and what we're going to see in 15, 16 months, uh, the qualifying tournament, you know, for, for Australia. And I mean, obviously the U S is primed for the Olympics, right? So, so it's Mexico in development facing, you know, the number one team in the world that's about to, you know, head off to the Olympics. So it, in a way, like it's, it's for me, it's not so much about, Hey, how did, how did those games break out as, you know, what, what did we see from Mexico and where are they going from here? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting process because, like we we've talked about this before, like there was some um, some like neglect from the federation for the women's team, and then like this year they they brought everything in. Like when they announced Monica Vergara in January as the new uh-huh. coach, um, she's someone that everybody wanted to take the job. Like we all wanted and we're rooting for her to take over, and they kind of made like a statement in that they also like announced that Maribel Dominguez, who is also like a legendary figure for, for women's football. I know, in Mexico, Marigold. Yeah, that she was going to take over the U20s and then Ana Galindo was going to move from the U15 to the U17. So it was kind of like the federation saying, okay, we're, we're, we're going to take this seriously. Like we want to show that, that we're supporting the women's national team. And after they appointed her, we were all kind of wondering like, okay, so we have the coach that that we wanted that we thought was going to to be able to do a good job and and now what's going to happen in terms of them getting matches and properly using the the fifa dates because there there were times where they would just like get together and, and train at the at the facilities and then maybe if they were lucky they would get like a scrimmage match against the u20s and they weren't really getting any of that like international experience and, and facing tough rivals. So it's been really interesting. And it's also felt a little bit weird for us as fans that now there's all these call-ups and there's all these international matches. And look, they're now traveling to Europe. And oh my God, they're getting a match with Japan and they're traveling too. And they're going to the States. So it's been exciting. Um, and it's been, it gives us hope that, they're going to try and do things better this time. But of course, now that the, in a way, the honeymoon phase has passed, um, we're also <laughs> starting to see, and, all, and this comes with the with the growth of the fan base too. Like you have more people um, scrutinizing the, the, the league and, you know, saying, oh, I wish they would call this player or I don't like this, this setup and everything. So... Um, I, I've started to see like some criticism of, of Vergara because they haven't been able to to win a game yet. But I think it's also interesting and I think it's great the approach that they have taken because they are not going for easy matches that they can win. They're going against some of the toughest rivals that you can find in across different confederations too. Like they're not just foc- focusing on CONCACAF. So I think that it's been interesting 
to see how how Monica in a way is kind of rotating and looking into players. Um, there's obviously like a, a core group of players who have been there like for a while, and there's of course you know players who who are in Europe like like Kenty, and you have players from the college system, and you have players who are in the league and. And I think that it, there there's been this interesting mix, and and she's mentioned before, like Vergara has said, I'm going to to adapt my rosters to the rivals that we're playing. So I can see that she's trying to find ways to set up the players to address different kinds of of playing styles. Because like I mean, of course, it's not the same playing against Spain than right. playing Japan, for example. So I think that it's an exciting moment. Like of course, we we all would like to see the team win, but I think that it's more important than that they are getting like this in a way tough love learning process. <laughs> so yeah, it's been exciting times for, for us as, as Mexico fans, because we are seeing something that we have never seen before. Well, and that's why like watching uh, the second game against the U S you know, it's like, that was, that was a pretty young keeper in goal. Right. You know, and, and Emily Alvarado wasn't even on this trip, right? Like it, this is, you could tell, or rather Santiago, sorry, Santiago uh, wasn't on this trip. You know, it's, it's like they're trying to get the younger players, you know, more minutes. And, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's fewer experiences, you know, that'll help you improve better than, you know, playing the, one of the best teams in the world. Right. Like, like if, if I'm a goalkeeper, that's, it's going to be a rough day, but I'm going to get some incredible experience, uh, you know, out of facing, Tobin Heath, Christian Press, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, right? Yeah, I think that that it kind of went to show that there's still like some work to be done in terms of, of maybe like the, the physical part to be able to stay in the game. But we're also kind of like seeing that maybe at first they, they were a little bit overwhelmed. Like it, I know that it can be, I mean, you're facing the, the world champions and like the, the stadium and everything. So it was also interesting to see like the the mental part, like how do you react to to being scored on, and how do you react to trying to keep finding things and trying to keep attacking and trying to keep doing your thing. So, yeah, I think that that Monica is definitely trying to build that experience for like for the big stage because we we want players who are used to facing pressure and to facing these kinds of situations for when the the stakes come in, like when when you are playing a qualifier. Right. And and that's why I think it's it's so important to, to kind of put these games in the you know, in the context of this is long-term development. Like like you said, it's it's less important now about, you know, being able to beat a a weak CONCACAF opponent, you know, like if Mexico had played, you know, uh, you know, Guatemala or something like that and more about the big picture of you know, hey, qualifying for the 2023 Women's World Cup, right? And and we don't know yet what the how many teams are going to get to come out of Concacaf. You know, um, it will be you know an expanded uh, World Cup. You know, going from 24 to 32. It's like you just want to focus on you know we have to be better than we were in in 2018. And I feel like they're I feel like they're lining up everything they can to to improve the squad, right? Like the league um, has a long-term plan and we, and we've seen, you know, the changes each year where at first it was only what it was under 23 and you had to be Mexican. And then they, like it was slowly adding overage players. And now if you have, you know, um, 
a Mexican parent or grandparent, like you, you know, you could play. And I think you said this season, this upcoming season will be the first to actually allow foreign players who have no Mexico connection. Right. Yeah. It's been like a, a gradual process and it's, it's still a, a league that it is, it's used quite young. Like I was checking some numbers and like 30% of the players that, you know, had minutes on the pitch, those were U21 players. So you still have like this very big, like core base of, of really young players that are growing and that are developing. And you've also had like the veterans coming in and you've had players to co- coming in from Europe, like, you know, Ceci Santiago, who just returned, Charlene Corral, who just got announced with Pachuca, and then players like Mayor or, or Bianca Sierra. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's an interesting mix. And right now, the as the rule stands, it's two up to two foreign players per team. And, like, the first one that was announced was Stephanie Ferrer, who is, like, a forward. Um, I think mm-hmm. she's she has, like, Brazilian-Spanish nationality. And she came in for Tigres. And then Querétaro announced uh, Vanessa Cordova, who is a Colombian goalkeeper. So it's not just necessarily, like, the big teams like Tigres who are announcing players. And I think Marta Cox is coming in for, for Leon. She's... Um, She's also a, a Panamanian player. So, I mean, you're, you're seeing like teams all across the board making this move. So it's going to be like really interesting to see how they how they come in because I, I was also doing like a chart to see how big, big the gaps were, like in terms of first and last place in the league and also between first and eighth place because those are the ones that qualify to, to the knockout round. And this season that passed was the season where there has been like the smallest difference between first and last place. And like the the threshold for qualifying has kind of been staying the same. So it's going to be interesting to see next season because a lot of teams have been getting like good signings. I think that we're seeing in a way like a reshuffling of of the balance there. And it's going to be interesting to see how much the foreign players and, and this reshuffling we're seeing can affect like the, the parity of, of the league. Like, of course, we're still going to have like teams that are super strong, like like Tigres, Chivas and Rayadas. And, and now Pachuca, I think, is back on that mix. But like seeing other teams that are kind of always on the verge of qualifying or are qualifying like in eighth place, like Toluca, who made some interesting moves, see, see how, how they're going to do this season. Well, and let's back up a little bit and talk about the end of, of last season because uh, I was so excited to be able to watch both legs of the final, you know, on American TV, not having to, um, you know, find some kind of illegal <laughs> stream um, Alternative to watch. Yeah. Yes, alternative <laughs> avenues. That's that's a good that's a good way to say it. Uh, but so let's back up and talk about. Um, that that matchup, I know it didn't uh, end the way you wanted it necessarily. Um, but talk about the the those two legs of the final. Well, it's it's interesting, like now seeing it in hindsight, because at the start of the season, nobody was betting on Chivas. Like this was a team that that dropped a lot of players and dropped big names, and everybody was thinking that they were not even going to qualify. And like for them ending up in the final, it was. It, it was like, I, of course, I wanted them to leave the title, but it's also interesting the approach both institutions have had. Like, of course, Tigres' investment has been 
has been huge. And like they're trying to bring in national team players in every line. And meanwhile, what Chivas has been doing is they have really been boosting their their youth squads. Like Chivas, the, the women's on the women's side, they have a U13, they have a U15, a U17, and then like the what they call the the pilot team, which is like youth players that are already training with the first team. Mm-hmm. So it's been interesting to see that that approach because um, Chivas on the women's side, they're also not going to sign any foreign players. So they know that that's right. out of the table, like right off the bat. So their approach has been to bring in like young players that are homegrown and they're, and then they have been making like really specific signings from other teams in the league. So then of course, like Ruby Soto returning from Spain was a huge move, like on attack. So I think it's kind of interesting to see this, two sides of the coin in terms of how to build like a competitive roster and we'll see if Chivas can keep up. Um, I, I I hope they will because they're, they're showing like really good young players and just like the process they have, not just uh, on the pitch, but off the pitch. Um, it's really interesting to see, for example, that they signed in uh, Gabriela Valenzuela, who was a player who was coming in from, from an amateur side of... Of, of football and then getting criticized because I mean how is she going to to go to Chivas which is such a big team and they weren't showing her a lot during the season because they were kind of like physically preparing her and then she's the one who went and scored in the final so I think we're still <laughs> seeing players come in from unlikely places and, and once you you get them into a good development process they're giving results so yeah, it was also a bit of a uh, display of, of two models in terms of how to run a team in the league. So it's going to be interesting to see like how the competition is next season because, like I mentioned, like a lot of teams are making moves. Um, also, um, Tijuana also announced Angelina Hicks, and she's also, I think, a foreign player. So it's not just like Tigres, Rayadas, or Chivas making the big moves. We're seeing moves all over the board and like I'm especially glad for, for Tijuana because they've been having like a couple of really tough seasons mm-hmm. so hopefully they can, they can go back to, to Liguilla again yeah it's just like I'm just I, I just love that that league exists it's, it's, it's a funny statement to say but that you know when you and I both know how strong the infrastructure is in Liga MX and, and you know and the FMF that, you know, when they finally made that decision of, okay, every division one men's team has to have a women's team. Like that's, I think, you know, the best thing they could have ever done for women's soccer in in Mexico. And it's, it's been great to follow the growth. And, you know, like I keep coming back to, I I think what it's really going to tell us how successful it's been is what we see happen, you know, in 15, 16 months when we have the CONCACAF, uh, you know, world cup qualifying tournament. Um, and I'm intrigued to see, um, you know, so Mexico went to Japan last month. Um, and like you said, that, that's, that's much better for development than, you know, playing, um, another team, you know, especially a weaker team in CONCACAF and then getting two matches against, you know, the U S this month. And then they've got, they've got some more matches coming up, right? Yeah. We still don't know what's, what's going to happen there. Um, John DeLuisa did mention that 
they were looking into getting more opponents because of course they want to to keep getting ready and like not lose this momentum that they're building but there's also like the the not so pretty part <laughs> that has been like part <laughs> of public discussion and that's been around the you know the sanctions that that the Mexican national team will have to pay because of homophobic chants so as we know, they, they got a too much like ban, like there is not going to be fans in there. But and, that, and that's the federation, that's the Mexican federation getting a ban because of chance at men's games. Right. Yeah, the, the specific matches that they got sanctioned for, these were like Olympic qualifiers for the men. So that's a mm. U23 match. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happened is that there's this, this like it was front page in Cancha, which is one of the sports uh, newspapers here in Mexico. And it said that the federation was considering for the women to, to pay part of that fine, like by having a, a match with no fans. And this caused like a huge uproar. And that's also a display of how much things have changed. Like if this had happened, but someone like, someone cared. Uh, plenty of people cared enough to cause an uproar that a punishment from a men's game would be handed down to a women's game. Yeah, I do not envy John De Luisa on that. Day. <laughs> like poor guy, he must have been like going crazy, giving interviews and trying to to clear things up. But I mean, he hasn't committed to saying no. The women are not getting part of the sanction. So what? It seems like it will happen is that they are going to, I mean, since they don't have the, those matches scheduled yet and they are saying, no, we, we don't know when we're going to have to pay for them. Like what everybody is assuming that will happen is that they are, of course, going to use that FIFA date, but then maybe one of the, the women's matches will be affected by that. And there's been like this huge discussion about, you know, oh, if women want equality, then, you know, this, this is a ban for the federation. Like you said, it doesn't matter who is going to pay for it, but it's also ignoring like the larger context of things. I mean, yeah, when, that's a nice, that's a last... nice cop out. We're all one team now. It's like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the official statement said, we are not actively trying to harm the women's team. Like, yeah, of course, you're not actively <laughs> trying to harm the women's team. Just You just kind of passively let them be affected by your lack yes. of attention to them. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like this, this larger context of, first of all, like this social change that is happening in terms of supporting women's football. And, and it's been great to see that. And also there's like this larger discussion about how how sometimes uh, people in power or people in those decisions, they ignore like the shift and they also ignore like the context, like how many matches has the women's national team have had in a stadium with fans in the last, right. I mean, I'm not even going in the last year, in the last five years. Right. And and like, you're suddenly now going to be like, yeah, I mean, you're going to start playing in stadiums so, so we can use <laughs> in a way that to, to, to keep like the ban away from the from the guys. I mean, it just came off like as a really um, insensitive way to to approach things, and I don't think that there has been like a clear like a clear stance of saying no. We're going to to try to arrange things so that the women are not involved because we are taking the fine seriously because we are taking this issue seriously. So it came off as a as a cop out, and it was like even worse for them like in terms of PR, because that very same Monday, they had announced like a partnership with the Frida Kahlo um, 
like groups to 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 promote the like Frida Kahlo alongside the women's national team. So wow, like on I Monday, on Monday you are promoting like specific like um, actions to 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 boost like the brand of the national team, and then on Friday you are going to use them to get out of a fine. So <laughs> it, it, it's kind of, it was it was like just like a a mess. Like like I I really di- didn't want to. I mean, I, I can only pity like the community managers for the FMF that day because like, they're not at fault and they had to deal with the with the fallout. So yeah, definitely not an easy week in the office for the FMF yeah. higher ups. But I mean, it, it shouldn't have to be. And like, I hope that they realize now that these things are not going to slide as easily as they would have a few years ago. Because exactly. now you have like John DeLuisa giving interviews in national radio to clear the issue. That's how big it got. Oh, that's, that, that's wonderful. That, that That's like, that's the, the only bonus of a situation like that, you know, is that it does in some ways, you know, prove that there's interest in the women's game and raise the profile of the team even more. But it's such a great example of how, um, I think discrimination against women's teams, it's not, it's not nearly as obvious um, most of the times as, as we would think it would be right. It's, it's not, someone's never, at least, you know, in in our world anymore. And what if I say our world, I say North America, it's like, there's really people trying to actively go around discriminate, right? It's more that passive where, you know, they're not thinking of the the game's best interest. They're not thinking of the women's game's best interest. They're just like, oh, we can just use the women's team to, okay, that'll solve that problem. Like not thinking at all that it's like, wait, <laughs> what are you doing? Right. Where it's, it, it's like, uh, it, it's still a casual disregard for the importance uh, of the women's team. Yeah. And the, another big concern that was voiced over the whole discussion of the issue was that then they could be setting a precedent so that also on the men's league, like if you're getting a ban or you're getting like a, a final yes. sanction that it would get transferred to, to the women's team, because as we know, they, they are bonded to the, to the club as a whole, like including the, the men's team. So it would also be setting the precedent so that clubs could do that. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of been a, a, a bit of a, of a mess in, in terms of sorting this out, but, like yeah, the positive is that people are more aware now, and they they are going to expect more accountability from the federation in terms of how they handle the women's team. Well, and and tell me this: what is it like if you're living in Mexico in terms of availability of not only merch for the clubs, which I would assume would be pretty easy, right? Because all the clubs use the same names, and you know they've they've got pretty good sponsorship deals. But for you to get a Mexican women's national team jersey customized with whatever player name you is that something that's easy for you to do yeah i mean it's it's gotten way easier like since it's the same jersey design it's not a a big issue but yeah you see like a lot of the of the big dealers like for example in nova sport who's like one of the biggest uh, sports like stores in mexico then they do carry like the chance to to customize like the women's national team kit so it's it's really great so if i wanted to to go and get like a alicia cervantes national team jersey it would be like relatively easy and it kept getting easier so of course we're, we're also seeing that that change and like you open the website uh, for them and like there's Katy Martinez there on the ads. So 
I mean, you're also seeing those steps in the in the visibility of like putting the the women's team players there too, like as faces in the in the billboards and in ads and as a way to to promote. I mean, the national team and also like the the, the clubs. And that that's just so great to hear because I've you know I feel like in some ways that you know Mexico was a sleeping giant, right? That we know you and I both know how passionate you know, Mexicans are about soccer, right? So it's like once they finally flipped the switch and started putting support behind women's soccer, especially at the club level, like I am I am not surprised, right, that Tigres, you know, sold out their their home leg of the final, what, within six hours with people, you know, in line in the middle of the night, right? I'm I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that Maria Sanchez coming to Houston on a loan, you know, having come from Tigris that all of a sudden we saw tons of Tigris fans at, you know, at, at the Houston stadium, right? Like, like I love that, that all of that passion seems to have transferred so easily from, you know, Mexico men's clubs to women's clubs, right? That, that, that kind of speaks to how powerful it is when your men and women's teams are wearing the same Jersey and have the same name, right? Like yeah. it's, it, it's unfortunate that with NWSL and MLS, it's not, it's not really a partnership, right? Because our, the NWSL owners, some are connected to a men's team. Some aren't. And the, some that are connected to a men's team, they're not all MLS. Some are, some are the, the other leagues. So you don't have that, you know, same kind of crossover, but I, I just love that, you know, the, the, the people I know who are Tigris fans in Houston, like there was no question that they became passionate Tigris women's fans. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because, Coming back to to the PR debacle that the FMF had last week, um, John De Luisa during an interview where he was kind of like discussing the issue, he said right at the end he just kind of dropped it there. He said, "Well, the chant happens in in women's matches too, so I mean, kind of like saying, yeah, but you guys also do it, so that's why you're you're also getting part of the of the fine." And this also caused like a like a bit of a a different discussion too because. I think that a lot of the women's league fans and and that this extends of course to the national team we are in a way a different fan base than the men because you see like a lot of LGBTQ fans Yes. Um, that are much more comfortable with the women's league because there are out players like for example Janelli Farias who has done like a fantastic job like advocating and being being like this visible figure of, of saying of supporting like LGBTQ rights so of course, um, when he said that, we were all like, okay, so don't lump us all together. Like, <laughs> we're actually trying to, to make the football culture, like, better and with less less machismo and less homophobic. And, yeah. and, like, of course, you do see the chant. I mean, I'm not going to say that fan bases are perfect, but at least, like, my experience, because I went to the to the first leg of the final, and we did see like a few like toxic attitudes, but those attitudes in the chant was coming from the part where the men's team supporters group sits. And because the men's mm -hmm. team support group came over to this match because it was a final. So when they started doing that, no one else like in the rest of the stadium followed. So we were all just like, okay, guys, this is not going to fly here. Like, I don't know what you do in the men's matches. But we are different here. So we are doing things differently here. And I think that maybe um, what the Federation should do, instead of trying to say that we are all toxic, I mean, they should acknowledge that 
the toxicity in the culture is the culture that they have grown. Because yes. of course, clubs with the, their supporters groups, they encourage them to go and to show up because of course you, it looks great if you have like a thousand people waiting for the team bus, but they have never really addressed the toxic behavior until it, it has gotten like unsustainable. So, I mean, I think that, that on the women's side, I see like a lot of people committed to trying to build a different culture and instead of trying to antagonize us or, or to think that it's all the same, I think that the federation and also the clubs should listen to, to these differences and try to use like that positive change that is coming from the women's side and trying to see if we can use it to to maybe try and change like the culture as a whole because there's a lot of resistance. I mean, we are seeing more clubs posting um, things on, on Pride Month and it still gets like a lot of backlash and and like, I mean, of course, there, there are some efforts here and there, but yeah, I mean, trying to, to say that just to justify the finding was like really funny because we were like, yeah, no, we're not the same. So <laughs> stop saying yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like it's a convenient phrase, you know, yeah, we're one team when you want us to be one team, but we're not when you don't want us to be. And yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I just love hearing that there was an uproar right the, that that shows you uh that the support's there the fan base is there that is just waiting to be grown um and you know it's no surprise to me how how passionate you know people are uh, about the women's game in Mexico and it's been such a long time coming right like i think about the first time that mexico qualified for the women's world cup and that was you know in 99 and of course they did it mostly using Mexican Americans because, you know, those were players who had come up through NCAA game, you know, colleges and, um, you know, cause you didn't have the development in, in, in Mexico, not that there weren't Mexican players, right. But they weren't getting the support and the development they needed. Right. So it's, it's so great now, you know, more than 20 years on that. It's, it's like, there's this flourishing league um, that's getting a lot of attention and that there's now um, a coach in charge who was once on the team, right? Like, you know, the it, it's it's kind of ridiculous when you think of how long Leo Cuellar was in charge of the national team. Not, And I don't say that as disrespect, but it's like it doesn't make sense for any national team to have one coach for so long, right? Or even the um, same family of coaches. Or the same, or the same family of coaches, yeah, because of course then Chris Boyar was, yeah. Um, but, you know, so it's like Monica Vargas, she did so well at the U-17, you know, Women's World Cup, um, you know, so it's it's nice to see her get that opportunity. And then I was so pleased when I heard about Maribel Dominguez being part of the crew too, where it's like, again, here's someone who was part of this team for so long, you know, and we got to see her in both WSA and, you know, the first season of NWSL, you know, it's like quality player. Um, but I, I would think that she would bring to the team that passion for, you know, I fought for all of these things for you guys, right? Like, like that, that the, the older mentor of, you know, we fought for this. You guys better, you know, do, do the best you can. So I just, I, and I love seeing seeing that on the sideline. I love that, you know, women's soccer is maturing enough that you're seeing these stars I knew from 20 years ago, they're still in the game as coaches. Yeah, and the like the mood change within the team has been 
like really noticeable. Like you see the players have like a much more positive outlook and I don't I don't know that they look like really happy to be with with Monica. I think that she's someone who who commands a lot of respect but also like a lot of trust from from players and yeah, I mean I think that between all this mix of of players from like different types of processes, we're also seeing players who who have like maybe like Licha Cervantes, who is like a bit of a late bloomer because she's 27. But she's someone who didn't have like a youth national team like pedigree. She's just been like a purely league developed player. And and yet there she is like on the national team playing international matches. So I think that it's also kind of like gives this message that if you're doing a good job, if you're getting results on the pitch, like it doesn't matter like what your background is, you're going to get your chance too. And that's good too when you when you have, you know, fresh new coaches, it kind of breaks up any, I would think, you know, previous clicks or favoritism or, you know, it's like, or you have to do things this way. It's like, no, it's a it's a fresh slate. Everybody gets a chance and, you know, it's time for a new generation to come in and, and you know, take it to the next level. Yeah, I think that it's, it's going to be interesting because... I mean, in the women's side, there's, there's not the U23 step that kind of helps, like, to finish polishing that development. Like, in the in the States, you, you guys have the, the college system, which does a great job of that. But here we don't. So, I mean, I think that Monica, like, among the, the kind of, like, challenges or, or things that she's going to have to do is how do we integrate, like, the younger players like Alison or, or Nicole or, like, even Ovalle, like, all those U23s, U24s, like into teams that have like players with like a huge ton of experience, like Mayor, who is like on her thirties. And I mean, I think that it's going to be interesting to see that shift in how to integrate the younger players in. And, and I think that it's going to be another crossroads that the, the league and overall Mexican women's football is at, is that we're seeing like a lot of returns from players who were in Spain or, or abroad to, to Mexico. So this, there's kind of been this debate or, of how good or bad it could be because, I mean, ideally you want them to be competing at, at a really high level abroad. But I mean, I think that it's also going to be a matter of seeing how many of those U25 players we can export and, and how many of them are willing to take the leap. Because I think that players like Alison, who is just 19, I think, and, and Dovalle, they can make that jump. I mean, like especially Alison with all the exposure she has gotten like internationally. So I think it's going to be, I mean, I'm not as worried about players like Charlene or, or Ruby Soto returning. I'm more worried about when are those younger players going to make the jump or if they are even interested in making the jump. And and it's such a good question, right? It is and a nice problem to have too, right? That there's more than one place to play, and that the the player has to think about what's best for my development, right? That if I go elsewhere, I'm gonna you know deal with challenges that maybe will be rough for a year or two, but will make me a better player, you know, long term. But I want to get um, your opinion on on one last thing, Melissa, because I this is something I've said a few times and I, and I think about it a lot, especially as we've dealt with um, how, how crowded the Olympic tournament schedule is, right. That they have to kind of force this tournament into a very short window. And that normally, you know, if we didn't have the, the pandemic last year, you always have the women's Olympics following so close on the heels 
of the Women's World Cup, right? Um, I, I feel like we're getting close to the point when women's Olympics should be like the men's and should be U23 um, so that it, it's not, it's not taking anything away from the world cup, which is, you know, the most important tournament. And it's providing that perfect, like you're talking about that, that like little finishing, um, you know, spot for those, those U23s who, whether they're coming up through, you know, a U system or here they're, they're coming out of college, but they're not like, you know, they, they need that next step before they're kind of a full international. But what are you, what are your thoughts about that? Especially, you know, I, I remember so clearly the day of the 2012 final, um, I was running a tournament, um, you know, way out at a big soccer park in Houston and all of the people that brought TVs and screens and, and phones so that they could watch Mexico in the <laughs> Olympic final, which was, of course, men's U23. Yeah, I think that, like you mentioned, uh, moving this to a, to a youth format, I think that it would be great for, for development because since there's not like the formally instituted U23 category, at least you have that kind of like thing forcing uh, yeah, it, it becomes too. it becomes the U23 World Cup, basically. Yeah, I think that it would be a, a good move because I mean also like the form in a way form part of the of the Olympic tournament for the men is that of course you get all these youth players who are mostly like always consolidated or consolidating, but like the possibility of bringing in the three extra players, I think that it's also always like a an interesting thing for fans who maybe are not as familiar with the young players. So I think that a similar format for the women would would be a great move because like I said, I mean the in the States you you guys have like the college system which is like really great and very solid. But in Mexico, like we don't have that. I mean of course the league has always tried to to keep that that youth element and like the way they require certain youth minutes from teams and everything. But I think that it would be like a really good move to have like a like an official like tournament or something that allows these players to to have like this this consistent like reason to get together and, and keep developing too. Yeah, and even the college system here, as great it is is as it is for development on, in the short term, one thing it doesn't do is prepare a player for a long season, right? Like at the longest, if you, if your team went all the way to the championship in a normal fall season, that means you were playing from mid-August to early December. That's it. That That's the longest possible season, you know? So, um, and you have usually have like a Friday night and a Sunday game. Now there is a push here to change how college soccer is scheduled to make it kind of a fall spring situation but you know but right now it, like it, it's not a good kind of long-term development it's definitely a great pipeline for talent right um to get that many people playing when, when you think about that there's 10 soon to be 12 nwsl teams and there's over 300 ncaa division one women's soccer teams alone right it's an it's an incredible pipeline but i i love the idea of you know, formalizing U23 as a youth development level, you know, and recognizing that, you know, just like the U23 men have the Olympics, you know, that it's, it's like, 
you just give the women the, the Olympics. Um, and I, I think, it, I don't think that is a disrespect to the Olympics at all. Right. It, it's like, that's actually like, those are, those could still be players who are on the senior national team, right. Who happen to be young, right. There, there's still a lot of people that would qualify for that. And I'm sure you could do what they do on the men's side as well, where you're allowed three overage players. Right. But you know, it's like, I just think it's, it's, it, it started off as, hey, the women's so- soccer calendar, there wasn't much of one, right? When when women's soccer was added to the Olympics back in the, the mid-90s. But now, as we, you know, have more elaborate World Cup qualifying and, you know, hopefully, I, I feel like down the line, we need to have a CONCACAF Women's Gold Cup that is not the same tournament as World Cup qualifying, right? Just like CONCACAF Men's World Cup qualifying and the Gold Cup are completely separate things. Right. So that, that's that's what I'd like to see more development of that. But that's a conversation I think that would take us a whole nother hour or so. So I'm going to cut it off here and say, <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to, to keep me up to date on everything that that's happening um, in, in Mexico with women's soccer, because it's just it's it's so exciting to me. And, and I can't wait to see hopefully more of, you know, a few more players coming from Liga MX and playing in NWSL. Yeah, it's it's been great being here. And like the start of the season is just a week away. So we're all like really excited to see, to see them back on the pitch again. Time to wrap it up with the back four. First off, the Olympics are done and dusted, but there is so much soccer still on the calendar. We've got the second half of the NWSL regular season. We got the European leagues about to kick off along with UEFA Champions League. College soccer is about to start. Plus, there will be three FIFA windows this fall in which we'll see Women's World Cup qualifying for Europe, as well as lots of friendlies for CONCACAF and other confederations. A lot of this information, as much as I can, I will put on my women's soccer calendar for Keeper Notes. So if you want to um, access that Google Calendar, you can search for it via Google Calendar uh, just by searching Keeper Notes. Or you can go to KeeperNotes.com, click on Wosipedia, and scroll down till you find the calendar link. And as mentioned in the Jen's Blainer segment in this episode, we've also got Women's ICC and Women's Cup coming up next week. Doubleheader on Wednesday, doubleheader uh, on Saturday for both tournaments. If you want more information about ICC, check out the Portland Thorns website. If you want more information on Women's Cup, check out the Racing Louisville site. And in case you didn't catch these two great free documentaries on or before um, before or during the Olympics, um, check out The 96 Effect and Sisters of 96 available on Peacock. It's free on Peacock. You do not have to have a subscription to anything. Just download the Peacock app or put it on your smart TV. Sisters of 96 is basically seven of the 11 starters from the U.S. Women's National Team from 1996 at the stadium where they played the 96 gold medal match, watching the game for the first time since they played in it 
25 years ago. So that there's a lot of cool behind the scenes stories in that. And then the 96 effect is a three part documentary about the 96 Olympics and how it was kind of the, the beginning of really women's team sports taking off at the Olympics and how you had the U S women win basketball, um, gymnastics, uh, and, and soccer and softball all in 96 and how that was kind of the first real, uh, title nine generation to come of age. So I highly recommend both of those documentaries last, but not least, um, if you haven't checked out my keeper notes almanac, you probably should. Um, it's available in print or PDF. You can check it out at keepernotes.com and click on almanacs. Always love hearing from people who have purchased it and have ideas for content for the next edition, or even if it's like, Hey, I found this typo and you need to correct this. Love hearing from people about that. All right. That's it for this episode of the Mixo Women's Soccer Podcast. Big shout out to sponsors, Roughneck Scarves and IcarusFC.com. Thanks to everyone who listens, subscribes, shares, talks about it, tweets about it. Always appreciate the support. And big shout out, of course, to my producer, Sean Ringrose, for putting this podcast all together every time I actually send him the files to do so. But now she's anybody's girl.